This morning's reading is from Hosea chapter 1, beginning at verse 2. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. So he married Gomer, daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. Then the Lord said to Hosea, Call him Jezreel, because I will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of Israel. In that day I will break Israel's bow in the valley of Jezreel. Gomer conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. Then the Lord said to Hosea, Call her Lo Ruhamah, which means not loved. For I will no longer show love to Israel, that I should at all forgive them. Yet I will show love to Judah, and I will save them, not by bow, sword, or battle, or by horses and horsemen, but I, the Lord their God, will save them. After she had weaned Lo Rahamah, Gomer had another son. Then the Lord said, Call him Lo Ami, which means not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet the Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore, which cannot be measured or counted. In the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, they will be called children of the living God. Then the people of Judah and the people of Israel will come together and they will appoint one leader and will come up out of the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. Hosea. What a great uh, book of the Bible that is. About 10 years ago, I uh, had a call from a man I knew, and he was ringing me to tell me uh, that his 17-year-old son was so angry with him that his 17-year-old son had just put a brick through his car window. And, uh, and he was ringing to ask me, not just to tell me that his son had put a brick through his car window, but also to ask me whether I thought he and his son would ever be reconciled. And it was quite tricky for me to answer that question because three days before I had found out that this man had been having an affair for the past nine months. And on the afternoon that he rang me, he told his son and his daughter uh, that he was leaving his wife and going off with this other woman, hence the brick through the car window. And so he said to me, will I ever have a relationship with my son again? And I just responded, I can't say, I don't know. What else could I say? Because he had been not just unfaithful to his wife, but by implication, he'd also been unfaithful to his children as well. And I suspect that many of us here know, perhaps firsthand, secondhand, maybe you've walked with people that have dealt with some uh, unfaithfulness in their lives and relationships. Unfaithfulness in all its forms, devastates relationships. And today we're going to be looking at the story of the prophet Hosea, who has dealt firsthand with unfaithfulness. And the paradox we're going to be looking at today in our series of paradoxes in the Bible is this. How can God be faithful to the unfaithful? How can God be faithful to the unfaithful? 
Now, this book of Hosea, it's not one that we, we read a lot of, uh, and it's a short book, but it teaches us so much of the character and the holiness of God. Hosea, along with all the Old Testament prophets, is brutally honest when they speak God's word. When he speaks God's word, he is brutally honest about people's sin and the effect that that sin has on their relationship with God and their relationship with other people. Hosea's message is a full frontal, no holds bars, brutal, um, in your face call to the unfaithful people of Israel to come back to God. It's in your face. And through Hosea's message, we're reminded of these two profound truths which you'll see on the screen. Firstly, that God is faithful to the unfaithful. God is faithful to the unlovely. God is faithful to those who think they're fine. God is faithful to those of us who are just cruising along doing our own thing. God is faithful to those who have wandered off and turned their backs on him. God is faithful even to the unfaithful. And the second thing we learn of the character of God is that God relentlessly pursues those he loves. God goes after his people. But before we unpack these two truths, let's try and understand some more of the situation uh, that Hosea was speaking into. Because if you open your Bible and start to read Hosea, it's like, what on earth is going on? Some of this is madness. So let's uh, look at the situation. Hosea's ministry spanned from 755 to 722 BC. And actually, that's a pretty long period of time uh, for an Old Testament prophet. And his ministry is grounded in a very specific time in history. Uh, You'll see in verse 1 of Hosea, Hosea, it says this, The word of the Lord came to Hosea, son of Beeri, we know who he is, during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, who are the kings of Judah, and during the reign of Jeroboam, son of Jehoashash, king of Israel. Hosea's ministry is grounded in a particular time, so we can know what was going on around that period of time. So at this point in time, we know that the nation of Israel is divided. It's divided into the northern kingdom, you'll see there on the screen in blue, and uh, which is known as Israel, really helpfully. So the northern kingdom of Israel is known as Israel, and then the southern kingdom is known as Judah. And since uh, these two kingdoms have been divided, there has been conflict between them. And one of the consequences of this division is that the Jews in the northern kingdom of Israel were discouraged from going down to the south to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is the spiritual home of the Jews. Uh, And they're, they're discouraged from going down because the leaders of the northern kingdom are concerned that if they go down, they'll be influenced uh, and they fear that they'll never come back up to the north. And so partly as a result of this, the people in the north have become spiritually directionless. And some of the pagan religious practices of some of the surrounding areas have started to infiltrate into the worship of God, the Lord of Lords, Yahweh. When Hosea is writing, also, the northern kingdom where he is, is enjoying a time of peace and prosperity. The people are settled. They're okay, thanks very much. But, as is often the case, when things are fine, 
people become complacent, don't they? It's like their need for God is diminished. They forget the power and the faithfulness of God because they've got their wealth, they've got their family, they've got their land. Things are peaceful and settled. They forget that daily connection with God. That gets sidelined. And other things in their lives become priorities. Maybe that sounds familiar to you and I. And so out of this complacency, unfaithfulness to God begins to take root amongst the people of Israel. The people break the covenant relationship that has held them, that has bound them to God since the time of Abraham. That covenant which says, you will be my people, people of Israel, and I will be your God. It's like they were bound in a marriage relationship to God. But for the Israelite people, this slippage has become terminal. Over many, many years, their eyes have been diverted away from Yahweh to other attractive religious practices, which offer to them so much promise. They've gradually merged the Canaanite worship of Baal with the worship of Yahweh. They've forgotten that the Lord is the sustainer and the provider of all life, of all good things. They've forgotten that covenant that they've had with him and that that they promised to worship him and him alone. And they've mixed it into their worship of Yahweh. They've mixed into their worship of Yahweh uh, practices to do with the fertility cults, which promised them that if they did this or this or this, then their lands and their bodies would be fertile. And they've mixed these uh, Baalistic practices, if you like, into their worship of Yahweh. And one of the ways uh, that this took place uh, was that they uh, went through a whole series of temple prostitutes. This was uh, the norm in the worship of Baal. And it was believed that if you paid to have sex with one of these temple prostitutes, your land and your family would be blessed with fertility. And these cultic practices have become so integrated, so deeply interwoven within the nation of Israel that many people didn't know where the worship of Yahweh, the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings, whom they had this covenant with, started and where it ended and the worship of Baal and these cultic fertility practices began. And so it's into this context, into this deeply embedded problem of complacency and spiritual adultery that Hosea is speaking God's word. God has been betrayed, if you like, by his unfaithful people. The people he loved faultlessly and faithfully. They have committed adultery against him. And so God calls Hosea. He calls him to be a radical sign to the people of Israel. And the events that we see unfold in Hosea's life become like a living example to the people he's speaking to of Israel's unfaithfulness and God's faithfulness. And so we see Hosea, this faithful, holy man, being told by God in verses 2 to 11 that we just heard read to marry an unfaithful woman. Goma, who is, depending on your translation of the Bible, a harlot, a prostitute, a promiscuous woman. Listen to this in Hosea, verses 2 and 3. 
go marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. So he married Gomer, daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. God speaks into this particular moment in time and tells Hosea to take this woman to be his wife. And we see in verse 3 that he went and he married her. Hosea demonstrates obedient faith in God. He trusts that God knows what he's doing by asking him to marry this woman. One commentator describes Hosea as being a suffering mediator of the word of God. Hosea is called to be a suffering mediator of the word of God. And I think it just all sounds pretty random to us in 2017. Why would God ask Hosea to marry a prostitute? But this was pretty standard. It was a pretty standard way that God demonstrates what he's saying to people in those times. Jeremiah, another prophet, uh, for example, spends years with a wooden yoke around his neck, symbolizing how Judah is subjected to Babylonia. So let's look at what we learn about the nature of God uh, in this prophetic poem of Hosea. So the first thing is that God is faithful to the unfaithful. God is faithful to the unfaithful. Now, my dad is a besotted, faithful follower of, in his mind, the greatest football team of all time, Bradford City. Uh, He has been with that club through the ups and the downs. He was there at the Bradford City fire 32 years ago, standing on the corner of the stand which was burnt down, killing 56 people. He has grieved and he's remembered and he's celebrated with Bradford City. He stuck stuck with them through promotion and relegation, quite a lot of relegation. Uh, He has queued for hours for tickets uh, to get a seat uh, at Wembley for the very few times they've managed to get to Wembley and to get onto the fan buses so that, you know, he can go down and share in the experience with his mates. He sat in that same season ticket seat with the same bunch of 70-year-olds now around them uh, for the past 20-odd years. And he has written to the chairman of that club, probably on a weekly basis, telling the board, frankly, what he thinks about appointments, player purchases, decisions that have been made. Um, But despite all these ridiculous decisions that he chews over and bemoans because he's a proper Yorkshire man, um, he has stuck with that club. He is faithful. He's remained faithful, and no doubt he will remain faithful to Bradford City until the day he dies. And I think it's completely mad, especially when I discovered uh, that when Zachary, his first grandchild, was born, the first thing that he did when he heard the news that morning and got the text was he got in his car, drove to the Bradford City shop, uh, so that it was there when he opened, so he could buy him a Bradford City scarf. <laughs> Complete madness. And he doesn't get much back, does he? from Bradford City at the end of the day. They're not the most amazing club. They're not exactly faithful to him. But maybe this sort of faithfulness gives us a window into God's devoted, passionate faithfulness towards his people. People who show very little faithfulness back to him. God loves his people deeply. He loves his people deeply. He's committed. 
He's in a covenanted marriage relationship with them. And so he expects them to love and to trust him faithfully in return. But as we've already seen, Israel is unfaithful. And their rebellious spirit has turned them over to other loves. And Hosea's life, his marriage to unfaithful Gomer, and her subsequent ongoing adultery is a symbol of Israel's covenant relationship with God. The nation is described by Hosea as being like harlots or prostitutes. Israel is, if you like, chasing after other lovers because she has been seduced into believing that they would give her what she needs to live. Hosea 2 verse 5 says this, She said, I will go after other lovers who give me my food and my water, my wool and my linen, my olive oil and my drink, those things that she thinks she needs to survive. Israel has, if you like, committed adultery against God. The people have broken the trust, the relationship, the bond of love. They've been unfaithful. And this is not just a problem in 7th century BC Israel, is it? We all get seduced by people and things that promise to give us life in all its fullness. Things that turn our heads away from our love for and worship of Jesus. We make idols of other things rather than God. What is that for you? What is the thing or the things that have become your idol, that have demanded your attention, that have turned your head and your faithfulness? Maybe it's shopping, consuming, having a nice house, or the latest phone or tablet. Maybe your idol is your work, achieving in it, being a success, getting the acclaim or the salary or the promotion that you know that you deserve. Maybe having enough money, having a nice place to live. Maybe your partner or your children or your grandchildren. Maybe it's social media or pleasure or sex or the pursuit of relationship. Maybe it's food or drink. What is distracting you and I from following and living for the one who is faithful? Kandia comments that the Israelites had so assimilated to Canaanite culture that the culture that they consumed consumed them. Isn't that a powerful image? Where in our lives is the culture that we consume consuming us? Where is the culture we consume consuming us? What has turned our heads and diverted our attention from God and your recognition that he is the source of life that he is the one to be trusted and loved. Where have we given over ourselves to something or somebody else? And I think the church and us as individuals, or perhaps even as couples or families or whatever your unit is, need to be constantly challenged about this. Where are we assimilating so much to the culture we're in that we lose our identity as children of God, as belonging to him? and worshipping him above all else. And through Hosea's life and his words, 
God is speaking some pretty radical words to a nation which is so assimilated to its culture, it is spiritually dying. His words are meant to shake people up. Have a read of Hosea. You are under no illusions by the end what God thinks about their worship of other things. This world and some of us need to be shaken up today. We need to hear that he won't stand for half-hearted worship or a watered-down love for, for him. He demands our all. He wants our full worship. It's a no hold barred message. And remember that Hosea's marriage to Gomer is symbolic of God's relationship with unfaithful Israel. And so I don't know whether you heard in our reading uh, the names that God tells Hosea to give his children with Gomer. His first child, I don't think you heard, was called Jezreel. And what's wrong with that name? It's just a name, Jezreel. Well, often we know that people give their children names that mean something to them. Uh, On Thursday this week, I went over to the Royal Infirmary to visit twin babies uh, born to Simon and Laura Tyler from our church. And this is uh, Iona and Peter. They were born at 27 weeks and they're very small. Do pray for them. Uh, There's Iona. Iona. And Simon and Laura were telling me uh, what the names of these two little tiny babies mean to them. Iona, the place, as you know, where Christianity came to Scotland from Ireland. And they're Irish, but living in Scotland. So Iona, uh, there she is um, on her pink bl- under her pink blanket. And then there's Peter, the rock the one on which Jesus said he would build his church. We did have a laugh because Peter is tiny and he's more like a pebble than a rock at the moment. He is so very small, but we prayed for Peter uh, that he would grow strong, uh, to be a rock, uh, to be strong in faith and life. Names mean so much, don't they? And there are some names that we wouldn't call our children. Maybe things like Hitler and Saddam. Or maybe if you're Scottish, Culloden. You wouldn't call anybody that. And for the people of Israel, Jezreel was one of those names. Jezreel was a plain. It was a fertile land, but it was a site of battle. It was a site of of treachery uh, and of a massacre. And it was a place where a judgment had taken place against King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. And so this name Jezreel was a daily reminder of God's judgment to the people of Israel. And then the second child, a a, a girl, is called Lo-Ruhama, which means not pitied or no mercy. Can you imagine shouting, Lo-Ruhama, and all the people thinking, no mercy, no mercy. Lo-Ruhama, God is saying to the people of Israel, because of your unfaithfulness, there is an end to my mercy. If you keep turning away from me, I will not have mercy upon you. There will be no pity. And then the third child, a boy, is called low army, low army, which means not my people. Even though the Lord had made this covenant and commitments of love with the people of Israel, the people have hardened their hearts towards God. And this name, low army, you are not my people. It's a daily reminder to the people that they are far, far from God. Yahweh is saying there is an end. 
He is warning them of a final destruction. Israel, you are not living as the children of the Father. And if you carry on, you will not be my people. The people are unfaithful. We are unfaithful. And so through the names of Hosea's children, God challenges unfaithfulness. He warns them of judgment. And he tells them that there will be a point of no return. But despite these warnings, God is faithful. Yes, God calls, he judges, he challenges, but his love, his commitment, his faithfulness is not like human love and and human faithfulness, which gets distracted, which breaks vows, which turns its head when the better model comes along. Ultimately, God is passionate in his love for and his faithful commitment to his bride, his people. And so he is faithful to the unfaithful. And by the time we get to verse 10 of chapter 1, we find that there is hope. Listen to this. Yet the Israelites, they will be like the sand of the seashore, which cannot be measured or counted. In the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called children of the living God. The people of Judah and the people of Israel will come together. They will appoint one leader and will come out of the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. God warns of judgment but he gives them a way back and a hope and a promise. God is faithful even to those people who are unfaithful. And then our second point today, God is relentless in his pursuit of those he loves. God's people have wandered away from him. They've broken that covenant relationship with him, the covenant vows they have for him, that he will be their God and they will be his people. And despite God's anger, seen through the names of Hosea and Gomer's children, he decides to show mercy. Why does he do that? Because of his faithfulness, because of his compassion, because of his love for people that is beyond measure. And we see this most radically demonstrated through Hosea's actions towards his his wife in chapter 3 of Hosea. Despite her adultery... Despite the fact that she's gone off with another man or two or three, despite the fact that she's got into debt and brought Hosea shame, Hosea's commitment, his covenant relationship with his wife, drives him to relentlessly pursue her. Listen to this, Hosea 3. The Lord said to me, Hosea, go show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites. So I bought her, her back for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and a lethic of barley. Then I told her, you are to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man. I will behave the same towards you. Did you notice Hosea buys back his wife? He redeems her. He redeems her from the life that she's found herself in. And ultimately, he actually buys her back from death. Because we know that the punishment for adultery was stoning. But he redeems her. He buys her back. Hosea is demonstrating radically God's faithfulness in the face of unfaithfulness. God laughs in the face of our unfaithfulness because he is God and he can and he wants to and he is deeply 
and tenderly and passionately in love with us. God loves us passionately and pursues us relentlessly. He comes after us like the father in the prodigal son who stands at the gate with his arms wide open waiting for his son to return. He is faithful. And this radical pursuit of the people God loves, even whilst they are lost, is seen most incredibly through the cross of Jesus. Romans 5 verse 8 tells us this. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. Whilst we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Whilst we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God didn't wait to send Jesus until we got it all sorted out. Because if he was, if he was waiting for that moment, he'd still be waiting now. No, Jesus died while we were still sinners, whilst we were still in rebellion against God, while we still had our head turned, whilst we still thought we knew best, Christ died for us. Whilst we were still sinners, Christ died for you and for me. Do you get it? Do you understand what he did? Why? Because he relentlessly and radically and passionately loves us. And we need to know this because this is our anchor when we're swayed by those things all around us that are consuming us, that are saying, come and worship me rather than the Lord your God. That those things that look so seductive. It's the love and the faithfulness of God um, that roots us as sons and daughters of the living God. And it's the love and faithfulness of God, which if lived out and shared practically in this world today, will bring incredible transformation into people's lives, like it did to Gomer's. I met somebody recently who had experienced some incredible rejection in their lives. And as I listened to their story, I had a deep sense that God passionately loved them and wanted them to know this again. And so as part of this conversation, I took this woman's hands and I looked her in the eye and I, and I just told her, God loves you. He, he loves everything about you. He loves you deeply and passionately as though you were the only person in the world. And I wasn't just saying it to make her feel better, but because simply he does. And I knew that God wanted her to know it. And it was though at that moment, the Holy Spirit just broke into her heart and her whole demeanor, her whole face changed as this burden was lifted. But the unexpected part of it uh, for me was that in that moment, God was speaking to me too. And he was reminding me how deeply he loves me. It was though in that moment, both of us sat in that room were re-centered around the love and the faithfulness of God. And we experienced something of God's transforming power because that's what the love of God does. It doesn't leave us the same. It transforms us. So God is faithful. And he has much more for us than we can ever ask or imagine. His love is a love which relentlessly pursues, that doesn't give up, that comes after us when we wander, when our eye is off the ball, when we get pulled off in other directions, when we prioritize and worship other things rather than God. God's love is faithful. When we're unfaithful, when people around us are unfaithful, God is faithful. And it's, the, it's that love that means that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Within this story of Hosea, Hosea is a type of Christ, and we're like Gomer, and God is pursuing us.
But like Gomer, we need at the end of the day to allow ourselves to receive that love, that forgiveness of Christ.